When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 1865, the Nottingham Forest podcast is proudly sponsored by The Terrace, the home of retro and fan culture sports merchandising. Check out their range of forest merch by visiting theterracestore.com or visit them on social media. Hello and good day to you and welcome to the 1865 podcast. Uh, we're recording in the October international break and in the last month, Forest have sacked Chris Hewton. They got their first win of the season under Stephen Reid. They've welcomed a new manager in Steve Cooper and they've managed to climb away from the bottom of the table and not just because of Derby's points deduction. Um, I'm going to put it down to Forest's high vis new third kit, but we'll discuss that a little bit later. So coming up in today's podcast, we're going to discuss what the difference is. How is it that first Stephen Reid and then Steve Cooper have got Forrest winning? We'll talk about those performance uplifts. Lots of players who've suddenly discovered a new level of aptitude. We'll talk about the voice of the fans. Despite the uplifting results, there's still some infighting, shall we say, going on on social media. And we'll also have our regular features. So we'll hear from Jeremy Davis. We'll play Guess That Red. And there's going to be another giveaway for you, courtesy of our sponsors, The Terrace. But for now, let's say a big hello to today's panellists. So hello to Tom Newton. Morning from sunny Yorkshire. Hello to Baz. Morning from sunny Yorkshire. (laughs) And hi there to Stephen Topless. Morning from sunny Staffordshire. Okay, well, looks like I'm the only one who's in Nottinghamshire then, doesn't it? Okay, let's start off with with results, because we did our podcast to talk about the departure of Houston and the arrival of Steve Cooper. Uh, Just, I mean, it feels like a long time ago now, but it's actually only really two or three weeks. And Tom, let's start with you. Um, The rot stopped the moment Houston walked out the door, didn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, I've been quite vocal on um, social media with this, is that Hewton bored me to tears in terms of how the football was played. And I think a lot of fans were like that. And since uh, Steve Cooper's come in, he's like you say, stop the rot. He's got players playing with smiles on the faces. We're playing with a bit more intensity. And hand in hand, the results have improved. Um, you've got like players like Grabin, who's playing um, a lot better. You've got Lolly playing a lot better. And he's just gone in there and he's actually grabbed the job by the horns, basically, and actually just gave the place an absolute um, lift in positivity and uh, energy. And that's what we've been lacking for the last 18 months. And, and Baz, uh, obviously we talked uh, before this month 
about Lolly saying, well, we've, we've got freedom and Graben saying we've got a bit of freedom. And that was just in the aftermath of the Huddersfield match before Cooper even came in. So that suggests, doesn't it, that actually the Hewton method was shackling players. There was um, something I saw, I think it must have been Lolly again, um, an article I saw basically where he said um, Hewton wasn't slow to give out praise, but the praise would be for tackling back. And um, for a player like Lolly, then obviously that's going to count as being shackled. Um, and it's it's quite interesting. There seems to be lots of stuff coming out where the players seem to have been very, very unhappy, but they kept a lid on it while Hewton was in charge. Yeah, and we'll, we will talk about that again in a little while. Uh, and Stephen, let's start with that Huddersfield match, but it's going in chronological order, basically. But what's also interesting is that I did read because Paul Taylor on The Athletic was saying that um, Stephen Reid went for the 3-4-3, almost for, not quite by design, not quite by accident, but it was more pragmatic rather than an ideological thing of this is going to be the best way to get the best out of these players. Um, But Cooper has, for the most part, stuck with that. What does that tell us? It tells us that Hewton perhaps wasn't using these players to the best of their abilities and, and putting them in places on the pitch where they could thrive. So if you look at the, the back three that we've now adopted, we've got the players to suit a back three. We've got enough centre-backs to to fill those three positions. So in the last couple of games, it's mainly been Figueredo, Worrell and McKenna with the wing-backs of Spence on the right and low on the left. And the players we have are, are very suited to playing in that, that kind of setup. So I think that's why Stephen Reed went for that that option at Huddersfield and why Steve Cooper has has now carried it on. And I do wonder now, looking back at some of the recruitment over the summer, whether they had Steve Cooper in mind or a similar kind of manager, somebody who would come in and play that three at the back with the wing backs and two or three in midfield and, and the the three up top. It the way that the squad has been put together now, it almost seems to me quite obvious that we should be playing this three at the back formation with wing backs. Mm. And I'll, I will talk about that in, in a bit more detail in just a second. Uh, Tom, I will just on that idea of formation though. Barnsley played three four three, played okay, but wasn't getting the results. So he took off the centre half, put on a centre forward. Went to four two three one, the much maligned four two three one formation, and Steve Cooper showed that formations are one thing, but tactics are quite another. Yeah, definitely, it was a brave move because in the past, Hewton probably would have like gone like for like, and he's like looked to touch and think, right, we need to play further up the field, more intensity. Let's get another attacker on because at the time, uh, Lolly Johnson and Zinkanago were playing pretty well, but they just needed somebody just to probably finish it off or just have a bit more care on the ball. And that's happened and it's paid dividends. So, um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with uh, having a different um, ideology with tactics. It's just been brave enough to actually implement them. And Steve Cooper did on um, a couple of um, weeks ago against um, Barnsley and he come away with three points. So, uh, yeah, it's a very brave thing to do and something that we'd like to see someone who's like willing to mix it up a bit because in the past it hasn't really happened and we've just probably... Once we got that um, goal in the past, we probably would have been like, right, we've got a goal away from home. Let's just sit on the um, on the draw and 
take away a point back to Nottingham. But uh, no, Steve Cooper's gone think, well, we can win this and brave enough. And like I said, it's paid dividends and um, for getting the three points. Baz, you, you were at the Millwall match. We would have lost that under Hewton, wouldn't we? We certainly wouldn't definitely. have had a lucky goal. <laughs> no, um, we, we yeah, we would have definitely lost that. That's the the entire setup that we've got at the moment is um, is much much more um, adventurous. And I th- one of, again, one of the the interviews I saw said the players are now set up to to win games rather than not to lose them. And I think that makes a big big difference. Um, the other thing is. Um, it's very, very Ted Lasso, but uh, Steve Cooper keeps using the word belief. The players need to believe in themselves that they can win this. The players need to believe that they can go ahead and do these things. The players need to believe in some, themselves that they're doing the right things all the way through. So that seems to be the big change in, in how we are. It's it's about winning games rather than not losing them. And that makes a big, big difference to, to how we go about things. Yeah. So let's go back to that idea that Stephen was talking about a few minutes ago. Not just belief, but also the the strategy. So the transfer strategy, we were saying in last month's, you know, September podcast in the international break. And in fact, if I I, uh, paraphrase what Nick Miller said, I thought we'd be talking about having Chris Wilder as manager, looking at the players we've signed and the positions they play in. So what does that tell us? Uh, for me, um, I think uh, these. Yeah, I think there's there's been a definite thing. I think in some ways, Chris Hewton was slightly unlucky in that he only really had what one, maybe two games with actual fullbacks. Part of the transfer strategy seemed to have been to throw away all our fullbacks and and leave us a bit short at the start of the season. But yeah, he was he was quite unlucky, I thought, in that sense, um, in that Hewton couldn't have played three four three even if he'd wanted to because we didn't have the players. And it's only Lowe and Spence that really make it possible. I mean, we could put Finn back in there. I could see him doing the job. And obviously, Ose Tutu got injured. But I think, yeah, he was kind of unlucky. But then I also don't believe that Hewton would have chosen to do that anyway. Tom, you want to come in there? Yeah, regarding the lack of uh, belief, I think the lack of belief when Hewton was here tra- uh, and transferred to the stands. I mean, when we went to goal down, the people around me were like, we're not going to do anything now. And going back to the Millwall game, I think, as mentioned, if Chris Hewton was manager, we wouldn't have got anything out of that one. And the lack of, as soon as that first goal went in, under Chris Hewton, if he was the manager against um, Millwall, would be like, oh, that's it now. We're never going to go back into it. So, And probably the atmosphere sat um, when we went to goal down at the City Ground um, over the last uh, few weeks or whatever. Mm. And to come to you, Stephen, just thinking about the idea of not just belief, but, you know, Cooper was very vocal in his first few days. He went on a bit of a charm offensive, didn't he? He had that open letter to the fans and in his press conferences, he's talking about saying to the players after the Huddersfield match, let's not let's not critique it too much. Let's just look at it and say, wow, you did really well there. We want more of that. That's what you're good at. So, I mean, that's what you need a new manager to do when results have been going badly, isn't it? You do. You need somebody to come in and make those changes, not only on the pitch, but also off it, giving belief to the players and belief to the fans as well, that things will improve and, and that the team can start moving forward. 
I think with the fans, I almost look at these these comments from Cooper. They're absolutely spot on, but they're easy wins. They're good ways to to speak to the fan base early on, to get them on side. And if four or five games down the line, we lose a game or we go on a bit of a run where we might lose a couple or start dropping points, it gives him time and it gives him that goodwill to see through those um, those rough patches and come out the other side of it because we've had a great start and it's it's been great to watch as well but there will be times when we lose games and we have to expect that we're not going to we're not going to win every game now for the rest of the season and, and fly to promotion it championship doesn't work like that so I think what Cooper's done he's got the fan base on side early on and there seems to be a lot of goodwill towards him already which is really great to see. Bowers. On that topic, I think, yeah, it's great when things are going well. But as we've said so many times, and we discovered most notably with Sabri, it's how you respond when you have a little run where things aren't going well. Now, Sabri would have one or two matches where things weren't good, but then he'd change back to his first choice team. And then he'd manage to eke out the results again until, obviously, famously, just after that Leeds match when, when they just ran out of steam. What can Cooper do to avoid that situation? Well, I think first, yeah, first of all, you can't tell about a manager until they're they're really under the cosh, um, and it's how they react under those circumstances that really make a difference. That's one of the thing. One of the things I'm really impressed about with Wayne Rooney is, yeah, he's been under the cosh from the start of his managerial career. So no matter what happens to him at Derby he's already got that experience and, and knows how to, to deal with stuff. And he's handling it really, really well, considering um, Steve Cooper, obviously he hasn't had that run. Chris Hewton, basically his entire tenure was that, that, that horribleness. Um, yeah. All you can do as far as I can see is build up enough goodwill and capital to see you through the, the bad times and, and show that you're willing to make the changes needed. And both those things, I think Hewton never built up enough goodwill. And partly because of the pandemic, he didn't build up the goodwill. But also he wasn't showing that he was ready to make the changes needed to get him out of that bad run. Why didn't didn't Sabri had a huge amount of goodwill? Why didn't it? Was that pandemic related, do you think? Uh, I think uh, with Sabri, um, he didn't know how to make the changes. I think The, the impression I got is he lost the players. They didn't believe in what he was trying to do anymore. That's okay. uh, that's an outsider's impression. Okay. And and Tom, so on that same kind of topic, I suppose, obviously we're seeing on comments pages and on the internet, we're seeing Swansea fans saying, Well, Cooper, yeah, it didn't didn't really go well and, and he was quite rigid and, and things didn't go well for him and that's why we didn't mind when he left so should we be worried about that at all if things do go wrong will Cooper be too rigid will he will he revert to type as so many managers do no I, I wouldn't no I wouldn't say so um I mean um we've gone through like so many managers over the uh, last few years and it's got to be a matter of like just staying calm and obviously trying to come out the um, the other side a bit stronger if we do go on a bit of a bad run. But having said that, Steve Cooper got um, Swansea to the playoffs twice in two consecutive se- uh, seasons. So I would say, OK, if he is rigid, maybe so, but that was sort of, uh, over two seasons, that was sustained progress. And we haven't had that. So if we just get one good season 
and getting to the playoffs, in my eyes, that's results as a success because we haven't had that since probably when Billy Davis was manager by getting into the playoffs. So, um, yeah, if we are there or thereabouts in terms of on the edge of the playoffs and he does get us in the playoffs, compare that to the last five, six, seven seasons, that is a success. And if he is rigid, but you get success from it, fair enough in my eyes. Yeah, Baz, go on. Um, yeah, so um, the the only other thing I'd, I'd add to that is, um, if you remember, Swansea also sold a load of their best players in his in Cooper's second season. So maybe he was rigid because he had no options. Um, and it might be that the same thing happens to us because, you know, our club does have form on that, but I think all clubs have form on that. But if it, yeah, that there's only so much you can do. It comes back to the same thing. Hewton couldn't play, play a 3-4-3 if he didn't have the players to do it. Steve Cooper, if we sold all our forwards, then yeah, we'd have to play defensively because you'd have no choice. So that I think maybe Swansea might be a bit coloured by by what happened in the past for them. Mm. Okay, let's. Uh, no, Tom, you just want to come back in. Uh... Yeah, regard, um, regarding um, Swansea, I mean they were in the Premier League for like four or five seasons, so they're probably like thinking we want more than what we're getting now, and they got relegated because obviously they weren't good enough in the Premier League. Whereas it's a bit different because we haven't even been in the Premier League for the last 20 odd years. So if we get a bit of success and potentially get to a playoff final and say if we lose, I still think that's a success for us regarding what's happened in the last 10 years or, or more because we haven't even got to Wembley, have we really? So um, but as it's that's probably for the, like the season or the season after if Steve Cooper's still in charge. But I don't think it's going to happen this year, but we just need to make steady progress to be in a position where we probably might be able to do that next season. Mm. 22 years since we're in the Premier League and for fans of a good segue the number 22 will be reoccurring later on in this podcast um, Stephen let's move away from the manager and let's focus upon the players so as Baz mentioned earlier Lolly for example he was talking about the freedom and then he he gave this quite interesting interview on Radio Nottingham where it's pretty unusual to hear players speak so openly about the previous manager in a way that I don't want to go go overboard and sort of say oh it's quite critical but it certainly shows the difference in methods doesn't it between the old school Chris Hewton and the more modern coach of Steve Cooper it does and when you when you listen to the interview you, you I know I was I was taken back by by some of it because it's very rare to hear players speaking so openly um and while he might not have referenced Hewton by name we all knew what he was talking about when he's talking about we have more freedom to play we have a confidence now among the players to go and play on the front foot and and go and and go and attack play and go and attack the opposition and and almost be more creative. And I think that's, that's what I got from the Lolly interview was that players felt stifled by the management of Hewton and didn't feel like they could go on the pitch and, and play to their strengths and, and express themselves. And he also mentioned, obviously, his own confidence, but the confidence of players like Jack Colback, who said he's revitalised in training and he's come into the team since then and has actually looked quite good. Looks like the Jack Colback that we had on loan under Itor Karanka first time around. He's a completely different player now. And you can you can put Lewis Grabin into that bracket as well. 
the, the, the everybody does look like they've just had that spring in their step brought back and the confidence restored. And I, fi- I do feel for Chris Hutton on the basis of he's, he's a really nice bloke. And I think we all can say, uh, you know, he conducted himself well while he was in the job. But it, it's quite telling when you've got players coming out quite openly in the media and saying, saying words to the effect of we've got freedom back and and we we've got creativity back in the team. It is a bit damning on Hewton in that regard. Hey, few interesting thoughts there, Baz. I'm just going to come to you with this one. Um, some people have suggested that this is a sign that the players downed tools under Hewton. Now, we discussed in our managerial change podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, that's a really horrible title, but we discussed when we were talking about Steve Cooper coming in, about there were no obvious signs from the outside that the players were mutinying, that, that Hewton had, to use the cliche, lost the dressing room. So those comments are quite telling, and you could interpret it one of two ways. One is that Hewton had lost the dressing room, but the players were too canny to go out and say it publicly. Or the other one being just that Hewton's methods just weren't going to work with a bunch of modern footballers. And, and there's two kind of extremes there, so take your pick. I think I think it was the latter. I, I, I genuinely don't think that the players... Again, as Joe Lolly said, Hewton wasn't slow to give out praise. Um, so I think what the, the players just didn't enjoy doing what they were being asked to do. And you know what it's like when you've got a boss who does things the way that you don't want them to be done. You do them anyway, but you don't put your all into it. You don't, you, you just, you literally can't because you're not feeling it and you're not being carried along by the manager. So I think, yeah, they, they did like Lewis Graben, especially he looked like he was carrying a weight he was he was just like a little bit half a yard off the pace or whatever, and it's not necessarily that he was tr- deliberately doing that. It's just because he wasn't feeling the the the, the style. He wasn't feeling that the, the manager understood him. He couldn't give himself that extra little bit of half a yard of pace or whatever it took. And I think that's that's one of the things that's that's come out is Steve Cooper does say, "Yeah, I believe in these players. I want I want Brennan Johnson to believe in himself, and they look like they do now." Whereas I don't think Chris Hutton ever said anything like that to them. Tom, Lewis Graben's a great case in point. Obviously, he's the club captain, and he's been accused of terrible lack of leadership. Even though we hear all the time from people close to the club that the players really respect him and they think he's a good guy, um, but Graben's always had pelters for his general perceived demeanour hasn't he um but Graben Colbach even though he's not one of the experienced old heads he's someone who's been around for a long time Ryan Yates those three players we've seen noticeable changes in their on-pitch demeanour and as Baz just said people who've suddenly discovered that extra bit of pace because the whole team is playing with a little bit more pace and a little bit more forward thinking so what do you make about it? I say those players in particular, uh, Graben, Colbach, and Yates. Yeah, I think it goes back to what we mentioned um, earlier about belief. Um, Steve Cooper's gone in there and it, he's gone in there with how he wants to play and um, with a bit of positivity, he's give, given players belief. And I mean, if you go in like um, by giving like praise or being appreciated better uh, you, in your workplace, you're going to come with a bit of a spring in your step. And those three players, I think the same things happen. I mean, with uh, grabbing okay, he's, he probably doesn't come across as like a uh, like a, a natural leader in terms of like Stuart Pearce, for example. But 
he's got the respect in the dressing room. And, and Robin Chipperfield uh, mentioned in, a, in an interview previous that um, Lewis Grabbin is one of those players who's a good thinker of the game and he's quite articulate. And I mean, sometimes you might just have to like go out and just play with uh, playing with an example. Um, exactly. And so I think if he's got the respect and then he's been given the belief by Steve Cooper, then obviously things are going to change. And if it's happened to him and then a few players, and it's going to look a bit easier on the eye of how the team's playing when you get more players believing into how Steve Cooper wants to play, um, etc. So hopefully that um, proves as uh, positive in the coming months of the season. And, and just on that topic, Tom, also, when... Uh... When we scored that goal at Barnsley and Joe Worrell literally lifted Lewis Graben above his head, that didn't look like a player who didn't have the love and respect of his teammates, did it? No, exactly. I mean, and if you look at when he scored against uh, Birmingham and um, and when he looked at like Ryan Yates kind of thing, it's like there is there is like a, um, a strong bond there with the players, and I think like a, like you mentioned, a big weight's been lifted from a lot of players' shoulders and gone out with playing with that bit of freedom and have gone gone into games with that swing in the step, and hopefully that proves positive for Steve Cooper. Like I said, in the next uh, few months of this season. Okay, now Stephen, I don't want to go onto a negative here, but the player who maybe hasn't been what we hoped in the last couple of matches has been James Garner, who, of course, was a player who talked very warmly about the Houghton influence last season. He's come in, he's struggled to kind of get his season going, and he's actually been first substituted and then dropped by Cooper. Um, so is there anything to, that we need to think about there? I think he's simply a player who's struggling for form, and he, he's not been able to improve that form even with the addition of a new manager now whether that's something that Cooper can can work with him on and and try and get him back to the James Garner that we knew from last season remains to be seen but at the moment Cooper's just looking at it pragmatically there's players who are in better form than him at the moment players who are contributing more to the team and with that in mind there isn't a place for Garner in the side at the moment. Okay and um do you think that partly that could be to do with the fact that Hewton effectively ended up building his team around what Garner offered in that holding midfield role? And now there's less emphasis upon that because the emphasis is upon quick movement down the wings and, and getting the ball forward, you know, as sharp as possible. Yeah, it's when you look at the midfield last season, like you say, it was very much built around Garner and Kravinovic, who obviously is not at the club this season. So I do wonder if Garner did, was affected earlier this season by not having a Kravinovic type of player next to him in that midfield, keeping it ticking over and almost giving him an option to, to move the ball forward. But I think there's, there still could be a place for Garner in this system. He's still young and he's still developing. He's got a good passing range. So I, I still think he's got something to offer. It's just right now, the way the team's set up, there isn't a place for him with those, with the way we're playing with the the wing backs who are providing so much of the attacking threat. There is less emphasis on having that Garner player in the middle, transitioning and picking the ball up and moving it through. So, just saying that, I think we're still looking to play through the lines. I think we're still looking to play the ball out from the back. So it might be something that in a few weeks' time we start to see Garner more involved in the team. I think he's still got a lot to offer. Uh, Bows, this is this is why it's a squad game, isn't it? 
Uh, yeah, definitely. Also, it's also worth remembering with James Garner, he's, he's still very young. He's 21. Um, he's come from Man United, where basically he was a no mark, came to us, was a hero for a season or half a season, and then chose to come back. And I'm, I'm, I've no doubt that the fact that he was a hero for half a season played an influence in him choosing to come back. And maybe he thought he could just swan in and do the, the whole thing again. And he's finding actually it's a little bit harder than I was expecting it to be. Blooming um, Man United prima donnas. Well, uh, and it's not just that. It's just <laughs> that's what happens when, when, you, when you get all the adulation and you think, oh, well, this is easy. So I could do it again and again and again. And, and yeah, maybe it's a little lesson that he just needs to take on board. Mm. Okay, right. So we shall leave it there for the time being. Uh, we'll be back in, in a couple of minutes and we will be coming back with a giveaway for you, uh, courtesy of our sponsors at the Terrace. We'll also talk about uh, what's going on with the fans and we'll have a game of Guests at Red. But in the meantime, here's Jeremy. Hi, I'm Mark Shardlow and you're listening to 1865, the Nottingham Forest podcast. As the world struggled to cope with Tuesday night's Facebook outage and the corresponding shutdowns of Instagram and WhatsApp, hundreds of footballers breathed a sigh of relief and just hoped that Twitter would go down as well. I wouldn't say that social media is like kryptonite for elite footballers. That's more like the FA Cup third round. Or Chris Hewton. But it falls into the same category as the Rabona. Sometimes it looks good, very occasionally it even produces something good, but most of the time it's a waste of effort that only serves to draw unwanted attention to your own inadequacies. For institutions so good at marketing themselves, football clubs, never mind players, can be remarkably clumsy when it comes to social media content. The Nottingham Forest Facebook page marked the international break by posting up a picture of Philip Zinkernagel looking shocked, with the caption, when you remember the Reds aren't in action this weekend. Taken literally, this suggests that the man they call Zink not only turned up for a match without realising there was an international break on, but was allowed to change into his full kit and run out onto the pitch before anyone told him. Which seems a bit mean, but I guess it's a cruel game. Incidentally, there has been some disagreement here at 1865 HQ over the pronunciation of his name. Zinkernagel, as in Annus Horribilis, which is what the Queen called 1992, or Zinkernagel, as in Anus Horribilis, which is what the people at that nightclub in Scotland saw when Michael Gove turned up and started getting jiggy with it. Perhaps I'd better just stick to Zinc, an element whose properties include being ductile, meaning it can be drawn thin, not something that could ever be said of former forest wingers John Robertson or Andy Reid. If it's a true reflection of the average professional footballer's powers of organisation that they only realise there's no game on when they run out onto a deserted pitch, it might at least explain why turning up for an appointment to get a vaccine has been beyond so many of them, and why Zink's Twitter profile is still headlined at Watford FC. Elsewhere, forest stars of yesteryear have shown that it's not just the current crop that come a cropper on social media – Speaking of former wingers, The Sun reports that diminutive Dutchman Brian Roy has been sentenced to community service for threatening the Dutch Prime Minister in a tweet in which he threatened he might get a headshot soon. This may seem like a hollow threat to Forrest supporters who recall how often his shots hit the target in his final season. It's almost enough to make one throw one's hands up with an expression of shock, much like Zink in that Facebook snap which may have been when he realised that he is still higher up in the periodic table 
than our forest in its championship equivalent. Thank you, Jeremy, and welcome back, listener. Uh, Nottingham Forest legend Brian Roy sentenced into court after threatening to kill the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte. Now, earlier on, I did say there'd be a segue to the number 22. It's 22 years since Forrest had been in the Premier League. And Brian Roy, of course, wore the number 22 shirt. Um, first of all, uh, Stephen, Brian Roy, uh, Nick Miller um, of this parish did comment in our WhatsApp group. There's something not right with Brian Roy. He might not be very well. Um, Stephen, this is, this is not a story that reflects well upon the ex-footballer, is it? No, it's not. And it's one of those when, when you first read it, you think, sorry, what? You start reading it again and really, what's going on? It's, um, he, I think he's always been a bit, a uh, little bit of a maverick though, hasn't he, in some ways? I mean, there were rumours that, uh, you know, on the, the Forest t- team bus, he'd, uh, you know, bring along a collection of mature videos, shall we say. There were stories of that, I remember. Is that not just because he's Dutch and people, that was a lazy stereotype <laughs> to go for in the 90s? I think it was Chris Bart Williams who, who said that. I've heard that on a podcast mentioned. Oh, wow. Uh, there was also... Oh. <laughs> whether, yeah, Dutchman, you know, Dutchman <laughs> maybe it is a, a stereotype, you know. Uh, I, yeah, I, don't, I mean, it's, it's just a bit of a crazy one, isn't it? I don't, I don't know what Brian Roy does now, if he works in coaching or football or anything related to football now, or if he's you know, focusing atten- his attention elsewhere. But I do wonder, maybe he's got a bit too much time on his hands. I always got the impression he was quite uh, an up and down kind of t- guy. Over the years, I've, I've seen interviews with him where he talked about how much he hated Nottingham and how much he hated his time at the club. And then I've also seen interviews where he said it was the greatest time of my career and, and I never felt as loved as I did there. So I think maybe, maybe yeah, maybe um, Nick was correct. Maybe he's not well, maybe he's just a bit volatile. Mm. Tom, any thoughts? <laughs> well... Uh, I don't well with Dutch players. So we've what we've had in the past, they're quite outspoken, aren't they? So uh, I mean, we had uh, Pio and we've had uh, Brian Roy. So uh, I think um, now Brian Roy said something um, as Baz has just mentioned when he left for us. He says the only thing Nottingham's got for it is Robin Hood, and he's dead. So uh, <laughs> Baz wants to. He's desperate to come in here. <laughs> just uh, completely and utterly off topic, apart from it's about a Dutch footballer, is um, my still one of my favourite ever um, transfers was Marco Bugers to West Ham, who um, <laughs> came came on as a sub, got sent off after five minutes, and then went to live in a caravan in Holland. Which also brought, I mean, we're no fans of the sun in this parish, but it, it was a classic sun headline uh, about Harry Redknapp signing the, the centre forward because the, the headline was Harry picks boogers. <laughs> anyway, none of which is what we're here to talk about. So we're going to talk about Brian Roy, famously the first Forest player ever to wear the number 22 in the era of squad numbers, mainly because by the time Forrest signed him, numbers 1 to 21 had already been allocated. So we're just thinking, what's the significance of the number 22 shirt? And I asked, I asked all of our panellists before we started recording to think about who's their favourite number 22 who's worn a forest shirt over the years. And the current incumbent, of course, is Ryan Yates, who's up see- who's seeing a, a bit of a resurgence in form. Um, let's come to you, Stephen. If I say number 22 and, and ask you to picture a player wearing that 
in red, who would you think of? I'm going back to Harty's playoff era and Ian Jess, the midfielder, attacking midfielder, had that number 22. Um, I think he might have only had it for a season and then he switched to another number lower down. But uh, he was the first one that came to mind with that 22 on his back. What about you, Tom? Uh, Paul Gerard, when we signed from Everton, um, I think it was 2,400, Joe Kinnear. When we had problems with the goalkeepers in terms of Barry Roach and the coffee cup, he'd come in and and um, our results uh, changed and we managed to stay up that season. So, yeah, I'd go for Paul Gerard. For the listeners' benefit, Tom is today wearing a white polo shirt. And when I think of Paul Gerard, I actually think of him wearing a white goalkeeper's kit, which was fairly unusual at the time. But yeah, he, he had number 22 for two or three seasons and moved to number one was, and was sold pretty much immediately. So uh, I don't know what that tell, tells us. What about you, Baz? Who's been your favourite Forest 22 over the years? <laughs> um, I can't really think of any favourite Forest 22s. Um, <laughs> the other one we mentioned earlier was um, Stephen McPhail, who definitely doesn't count as a, a favourite because of just because of the time it all happened in yeah so no reflection no reflection on him is it it's just that we were pretty pants at the time and put Danny Cullip in that bracket as well Tom um Michael Chopra oh my life that's another one I've I've just blocked out full stop I've just gone on Wikipedia and um yeah Paul uh, I think I think he was signed when uh, we couldn't score goals under Paul Hart after the playoffs. and we still couldn't even after signing Michael Chopra so drawing great conclusions (laughs) I think the best they did was they uh, hit the post against Coventry. Then I think that was the game where Paul Hart got the sack. So after we lost one nil, so well, well, yeah. Draw your own conclusions there. Um, I was going to nominate the player who was actually the next incumbent of the number twenty-two shirt after um, after Brian Roy had left the club. And because when we went down, we didn't have squad numbers for a year under Dave Harry Bassett, and then he reallocated them. So. The number 22 shirt actually went to Des Little, who was still at the club, but had lost his place that year to Mathieu Louis-Jean, who got the number two shirt. So Des went for number 22. I don't know if that's because he just wanted to prove that he really was the number two. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm going to go for Des Little uh, as my number, as my favourite number 22. So courtesy of our sponsors the terrace we have three forest mugs and three kit hangers for your car window to give away and we would like to offer these to three lucky winners all you need to do is email forestramble at gmail.com and let us know who was the next player after brian roy to wear number 22 for forest so who was the next forest player after brian roy to wear number 22 and email us forestramble at gmail.com. We will select three lucky winners, but you need to email us by Friday the 15th of October at 8 pm. And we'll contact you over the weekend if you are one of our lucky prize winners. So thank you very much to the Terrace for providing these prizes. And hopefully, you can get your hands on a mug and a forest kit hanger. Okay, let's move on. And let's talk about something to do with the fans. Now, Tom, you've talked to us in the past about how you were involved in the setting up of the Nottingham Forest Supporters Trust. And for some reason, even now the dust has settled on Hewton and so on, there's still a lot of people who seem to be just wanting to lay into the trust. And I don't think they understand what the purpose of a supporters trust is. What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, 
Forzagawa Boldia, basically, they, they seem to be a bit more easy on the eye when they do the, the boat trips and other things, and because you don't have to actually pay for it, so to speak. And then the trusts are asking for £12 a year, which is basically £1 a month. I think it gets mixed up in that, and people think, oh, it's just self-elected people, etc. Um, so I just think it's... I mean, the trusts have come out with uh, social media in the past and says they're going, um, this is what we're doing, everything. I just think, because there's a fee involved, I think people just dismiss it as, like, self-elected uh, bunch of people, which isn't true, because they've, they've done quite a lot in the uh, past few years of uh, getting involved with the community. Um, so, yeah, I just think it just gets missed in translation of what the trust actually do compared to other supporters group. And I think because Forza Garibaldi, which they do a lot of good, a bit more easy on the eye than the trust, you see, and they just basically um, compare the two. Yeah, I, I think that thing about that really, I don't know if I say it got to me, but it annoyed me. Now, I'm no, I'm no, I'm fairly neutral about the trust. I've paid my subs in the past. I do think that there is an issue whereby the relationship between the trust and the club has to be has to be on an even keel if we put it that way but what i also wonder about is this idea that the trust are not representing forest fans and also that um so this is something that someone commented. Anyone charging fellow Forest fans to gain exclusive, but not exclusive at all, information deserves all the flack that goes their way. And so I replied in a very neutral way. Any Forest fan can join the trust and stand for election. It's up to you whether or not you choose to do so. To which I was replied, £12 is a ripoff. So I just said, well, you either pay the money and you get to join that voice or you don't. So I don't know. So and it, let's just say it got a bit testy for no real reason. Baz, what are your thoughts? I think to some extent that there's an issue because there's so many people out there like like us, in fact, who do this kind of thing around the club for free and don't charge us anything and and basically do it because we love the club and we don't really have anything else. Uh, no way of making money off it so as soon as someone charges for it it's like well they're just trying to make money off us and we do this for free so why are they trying to do that and that the charge I think sets a, an expectation around it there's also the, the fact that um, for example the Nick Randall interviews it was the trust that got to do them and they were informative but they weren't exactly hard-hitting and and you wonder but then you also know that this is a club that doesn't really like hard-hitting uh, publicity. So so you wonder, well, maybe that was the condition of getting it. But then you're thinking, right, well, if you're paying your money, then surely we should get what we want out of it. So uh, it's kind of, I think that the fact that it's, it's charging money is what sets a lot of people off. Some people think, yeah, charging anything for anything is outrageous, especially when it's it's just information and and, and so on. It's not like you, you'll get... I mean, I can remember actually when I first paid the subs, I got some absolutely lovely art of football prints. And that was really, really nice. But actually, for the most part, you're not getting anything tangible from it being part of the trust. So I, I can see why people don't like it. But then that's not the point is everything costs money. <laughs> you know, it costs money to keep the thing going. So that, that's kind of what, you, what you're doing there. Tom? Yeah, um, I mean, I spoke to somebody from the um, who's on the board of the trust, and I says because um, uh, when the actual Nick Randall interview come out, a lot of posters was like, "Oh, everything was edited." 
nothing was edited. Um, the club answered everything what was asked upon and nothing got said like, oh, can we miss that, uh, this, that and the other. So, um, yeah, everything was answered with what was presented to the um, to the club, you see. So, but I just think supporters are actually not going to, like, please everybody in a fan base of, like, 30-odd thousand. Um, people might be pro-trust, uh, people might be against the trust. But like you've mentioned, you have a choice if you want to make a change pay your money obviously and if you want to seek election or be a member to try and obviously um have things where you believe in or except but if you don't want to do that you don't have to it's not like people are holding you uh, to ransom in terms of like you've got to join the trust it's it's a choice at the end of the day if you want to make that choice join if you don't you don't at the end of the mm. day just um as you mentioned that that q a there Tom now obviously I think the trust did get and I think actually some justifiable criticism because could it have could they have asked some harder questions we didn't know at that stage what level of editing was going on um I just want to go off on a bit of a tangent here but uh, the thing that's caught the headlines in football in the last few days has been the Saudi takeover of of Newcastle United and there's a bunch of fans and if I was a Newcastle fan I'd be one of them who'd be saying well, Mike Ashley is a horrible, horrible man. But on the other hand, he's actually tried to run the club as a viable business, whereby they're not spending more than they earn, et cetera, et cetera. And he's done that while somehow managing to keep the club in the Premier League. And well, at the moment anyway. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got all these fans who are celebrating going, yes, we've got rid of Ashley. And look, we've got these money bags, new owners, and now we might actually be successful. And it just goes to show, doesn't it? In football... People, some people will be tolerant of anything as long as they're getting results and then they'll be absolutely critical of everything if they're not. It feels that there is that very black and white divide, isn't there? People are, and maybe that's just a, a consequence of society and maybe social media as well, and no pun intended on the uh, black and white, by the way. But an example of the, um, the Newcastle thing, I saw one of the uh, Newcastle Pride groups issuing a statement welcoming the new owners to the club and I'm I was a little bit surprised by that I'm thinking really that's you know given the uh, the the record that we've heard about you know people how uh, people have been treated in Saudi Arabia for, for it's just you know baffling really it it's like we can forget our principles quite easily as football fans sometimes and I there will be Newcastle fans who will be questioning the takeover and questioning the 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 record of the people who are in charge and who are affiliated with the takeover. But there is that very worrying trend that as long as things are okay on the pitch, we we don't really mind what's going on off it. And Forrest and us at that same level, obviously, we haven't got ownership at that kind of level will or with that kind of background but maybe it's a culmination of 20 years of mediocrity has come back and that's where these people who are critical of the trust who are critical of individuals involved with the club maybe they feel their intentions are good behind that but it's it's probably pent-up frustration of mm. years and years of the club not really going anywhere that manifests itself in that way. Baz I'm going to come to you on this one because you and I have talked 
sometimes on the pod, but quite extensively about Maranakis. And I think it's worth pointing out that for all the things that Maranakis has been accused of and charged with, he's never been, you know, nothing's ever been proven against him in terms of all of these allegations. But at the same time, there are people making a similar allegation about him as they have been doing about Mike Ashley, which is that he doesn't actually care about the club. It's just a rich man's plaything. Is that just modern football? Um, to some extent, I, they're, they're, if you believe some of the accusations against um, allegations against Maranakis, then what you would own a football club in another country for isn't necessarily anything to do with football at all. Um, but uh, I think, um, yeah, if, if you believe the allegations against Maranakis, then, yeah, we have owners that aren't necessarily morally pure. But as one of my friends who's a Newcastle fan says... Find me a Quaker billionaire to run our club and we'll happily have them buy it out. So um, I think if you've got that much money, then you're probably your hands are going to be dirty in some way. Mm, Okay. And Tom, you wanted to come in as well. Mike Ashley uh, might not be perfect, but at the end of the day, he's a businessman and he's kept Newcastle. Okay, they've had a couple of relegations during his ownership, but he's kept them pretty much debt free. So it's not as bad as like a Berry who's disappeared and uh, Bolton who are very close and disappearing. Yeah. And that's the thing, as football fans, we sometimes lose perspective. And that's the thing that yeah. you could always say about Arsenal fan TV and to Newcastle fans. is like, you know what? Oh yeah, only being top half of the Premier League anymore, uh, every season. That's such a, such a hardship when people have seen their clubs literally go to the wall. Baz, you wanted to come in? Uh, well, so two of my best friends are Newcastle fans, so I get this in the net quite a lot. And I think there are many similarities between us and them in the the weight of expectations from the fans. Yeah, like, like Tom was saying, Mike Ashley kept them debt-free and kept them re- not maybe where they wanted to be, but kept them running as a club. And yeah, there's lots of... I, I, again, one of my friends, his brother was a coach at Newcastle. And I heard a lot of stories about what was going on behind the scenes. It sounds like an absolute horror show, but and I, and I can understand that there's lots and lots of stuff that they're not happy with, but there's a level of expectation around the club that is possibly unrealistic. I can remember when, um, what's his name? The, the, um, one of their managers got sacked. Uh, pardon you, yeah. And the Newcastle fans hated him, absolutely hated him. And Cockney he kept Mafia. him, in, yeah, but he kept him in the top half of the, the, the table and I was like you're going to regret getting rid of him and then they got relegated straight after and it was that that sort of thing it's like yeah you don't you don't know how good you've got it at some points and that's also the case with us when we had Nigel Doughty in charge maybe we had relegations and we had lots and lots of problems but we don't know how good we've got it sometimes. I mean you mentioned about Nigel Doughty as well I would say that one of the things that uh, Football wise, you know, I try and keep perspective on life, but football wise, something that will always be in the back of my mind echoing around is listening to the radio before that match um, where Steve McLaren and Nigel Doughty went and listening to Mark Arthur just saying, be careful what you wish for, because Mark Arthur knew what he was saying then. But all the all the criticism he took and I don't know how much of it was justified or not, but you look at what happened once Nigel Doughty, Mark Arthur um, Frank Clark, Keith Burt, all of those people who knew how to, who knew football once they were gone, and then you had it all in the hands of basically, you know, a rich man who'd never actually worked a day in his life. You see what happened then. So that's that's all I'm saying. Um, Tom, it makes my life with Newcastle. I mean, since the takeovers uh, come through, uh, gone through, 
they've had a, like a list. We're going to sign this player. Going to, and the most historic issue they've had is attracting the best players to Newcastle because it's a million miles from London. So they've had... Yeah. Really can't see the likes of Mbappe. Yeah, um, they can't do anything about geography, can they? Yeah. Messi and Mbappe being coached by Steve Bruce in the freezing, freezing northeast. So wasn't that something that they did at Middlesbrough where they said, yeah, it's just outside London? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, they gave them a tour, didn't they, around uh, London and everything, and then signed them and everything, and realised it is quite far away. And this, uh, this segues back to Brian Roy, because I, I think gonna... he told his wife that they live just outside London. <laughs> yeah. Frank Clark, didn't she, on that yeah. bus? Uh, yeah. USA 94. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Stephen? With Newcastle and Mike Ashley, everybody's talking about the, the lack of investment, the lack of progress under him. But one thing I read this week is that Newcastle are able now to go and spend £200 million on players and not have to worry about financial fair play because of the way Ashley has run the club. He's almost given them that freedom to go and spend now. And I look at down the road at Derby, the situation they're in, because Ashley has now been linked with the takeover of Derby. I think they'd give an arm and a leg to have him as their owner right now, because at the very least, he'd go in there and and turn a club riddled with debt. He'd probably turn them around and make them profitable in a couple of years' time. And at least he'd keep the lights on. I mean, in an era where where we've seen lots of successful businessmen make an absolute pig's ear of running a football club. And also in an era whereby the majority of football clubs will simply run as close to the allowable losses as possible, rather than thinking about running the club on a sustainable, you know, an even keel. I think that's a really valid point, Stephen. Now, there obviously is also a moral issue about Mike Ashley's business dealings, um, sports direct warehouse workers etc etc but we're not here to discuss that we're here to talk about forest and just another thing about forest fans Stephen, some of the um, other vloggers and bloggers and so on um, who got invited to a bit of an evening with steve cooper which is all a bit last minute so i'm assuming they just couldn't get hold of us on the day um but uh the accusation was that all the do-gooders got invited some people are just. I'm, finish that sentence. Do you want to get the Do you want to get the bleep ready for this, or you know, <laughs> um, people just there's no pleasing people, is there? Really, they would be complaining and moaning if there was no communication from the club and we were being run from behind a curtain and we didn't know what was going on. And then we open up a communication channel, and actually, Steve Cooper's idea to get the fans in because he wanted to speak face to face with fans, invite them into the club, invite them into, to, to watch a training session. Boristramble at gmail.com, Mr. Cooper. And he's opened up an opportunity there for the fans to come in and talk to him and have a frank and honest conversation with him and his views for the club. And I'm just seeing a lot of playground jealousy from some people on social media. I think deep down they're just wanting to wanting to to go themselves, and they're just there in a roundabout way saying, "Well, why didn't I get to go?" And and the the the, the danger is there. So the a particular person who was being quite so was being quite critical about the fact that um, Match Day with Max and Mister Dor were both invited, and. 
you know, they, I don't know either Max or Mr. Dor personally, but they seem like decent guys and you'll have heard Mr. Dor contribute to our podcast in the past. And they both replied just to say, well, this is what was going on and, and this is what happened. And uh, it's just a chance for Cooper to meet the fans, to which the original poster responded with F off out of my mentions. So he's being really gracious and graceful about it. Uh, Baz. Um, I, well, first of all, if it's all the do-gooders that got invited, that probably makes us troublemakers then, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair point. Uh, but then the other thing is, um, uh, yes, for, I think football plays different roles. When when you're a fan and you're not, you have no control over what actually happens at the club. Football plays different roles in it. And to actually go back to one of my Newcastle friends, um, for him, football is where he goes to have a massive, great big moan. And it doesn't matter what's happening on the pitch. He's always complaining. And then there's the woman who sits behind me, who at the Millwall game, every single word was complaining about Bree Samba, even though he was playing quite well. And it was like, that's, for some people, I think football exists to to give them an outlet for all their anger and frustration and everything else that's going on in their life. It gives them somewhere where they can put it. And maybe that's, just what happens is it's like some people just need to get it out there and it's doing that or kicking the cat. Okay. Um, now I'm just going to, uh, we are going to move on, but I just want to mention a couple of things that Tom had pointed out um, or a couple of Tom related things, shall we say. So during that conversation, Tom was literally banging his head against the table uh, <laughs> <laughs> with in reference to that particular Twitter exchange. And then the other thing is just that, Tom had mentioned that one of those particular tweeters is apparently well known for being a wind-up merchant, to which my response is, no one speaks fondly of Jeremy Beadle. So <laughs> anyway, it's time to move on and let's have a game of Guess That Red. 1865, Guess That Red. So it's time for our monthly quiz, Guess That Red, where we have to... We get a few clues and we have to try and work out who the player is. So Tom's going to read out some clues and Stephen, myself and Baz, we're going to try and see if we can guess who that famous Forest player might be. Over to you, Mr. Newton. Right, here we go. So I played 511 games in my career. That's a very broad clue. (laughs) (laughs) away straight away um the second question is i left force of psv in 1984 in which i retired at psv 10 years later in 1994 rish go on hans hans van brooklyn yes it is hey so um the other three questions was i played at euro 88 in which my country won which i didn't I wouldn't have said the latter because obviously you would have got it straight away. But the other one, the fourth question, I replaced Peter Shilton as goalkeeper in 1982. And I won the treble for my club um, in 1988. And on that, was uh, Van Broekelen replaced by Hans Sagers, another Dutchman? Yeah, yeah, he was. Mm. Uh, then Chris, um, then Steve Sutton come in, didn't he? And, uh, mm. uh, but uh, no... It was a decent year for Hans van Borkland because in 88 he won the treble for PSV, then he won the Euro 88. So, and decent. he was and he was just in the ground when Marco van Basten scored that goal, which in yeah. 
my view is probably one of the greatest hits of all time. I think 1988 was probably one of the best years because I was born then. Well, you know, there's always a downside <laughs> to everything in there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mrs. Newton. Your boy is a lovely chap. <laughs> so, okay, well, that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. So we say a big thank you to Baz, to Tom Newton, to Stephen Topless. In absentia, we say a big thank you to Married on the Midlands, who contributed to the running order for today. And also to Nick Miller, who, without even realising, has contributed quite a lot to this month's podcast. Uh, we also say thank you to our friends at FanHub and to our sponsors, The Terrace. And thank you to Jeremy for the sketch. We'll be back with match reports and more content for you over the next few weeks. As always, if you like what you hear, please leave a review on your podcast provider, especially if it's Apple, as it helps other people to find our content. And in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. We will be back with match reports and other tidbits throughout the next. Oh, for God's sake. Sports Social Podcast Network.